is our football training ground and stadium partially if not totally flooded by 2050 due to rising sea levels because of our location on the south coast. Hello and welcome to another edition of Breathing the News, the IEMA podcast from the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. We're the institute for anybody with an interest in sustainability and the environment. Now, one thing that was really noticeable by its absence during the months of lockdown around the world was sport. Top flight football and rugby matches being played to empty stadiums, which felt so strange that the stadia themselves ended up playing crowd sound to make the events feel more normal. Now, sport has an amazing ability to bring people together. You just have to look at the Olympics and World Cup events in all sports to see that. But perhaps inevitably, politics ends up being a part of sport as well. Various countries boycotting the Olympics, a minute silence for a recently deceased political leader or head of state, and whether that minute silence is being appropriately observed, depending on your world viewpoint. All of these things end up being part of the sporting landscape. Now, world sporting events where tens of thousands of people travel the globe, descend on a single point, eat, drink and otherwise consume as they go, well, that could almost be the definition of an unsustainable event. And yet, without global sporting matches, uh, we'd all be infinitely poorer. So how do we ensure that sport can be sustainable in all senses of the world in its current form? So we've got two brilliant guests to talk about this with us. Uh, Jamie McKeon, Sustainability, Diversity and Inclusion Manager at World Rugby and Caroline Carlin, IEMA member and Ops and Sustainability Manager at Southampton Football Club. Great to be here. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for, for spending the time because I know, you know, there's, there's, there's always a sporting event just around the corner and uh, 12 months away may seem Jamie-like not really just around the corner, but it is in in world terms, isn't it? And you've got the World Cup coming up next year in France. Yes, we do. Uh, And before that, uh, we were just after having the Rugby World Cup Sevens in Cape Town. uh, And next month, we'll be having the uh, Rugby World Cup uh, for uh, women down in New Zealand, uh, which is the uh, rescheduled tournament from last year, uh, which was impacted by COVID. So uh, plenty, plenty going on at the moment. Now, I think uh, anybody who is a sports fan uh, knows that there's been a bit of a COVID bounce after years of not being able to get to go to travel to various countries. Loads of people are desperate to go and see their sport. But there is a balance, isn't it? I mean, the carbon that people burn traveling around the world, going to matches. You know, how do you manage to, to square that off with a sustainable planet, particularly when you've got teams who are playing who are being directly impacted by climate change? Yeah, look, it's a it's a very good question, Sarah. Um, I mean, we are an international sporting federation, you know, but by virtue of, of what we do, uh, we're international. The world has definitely gotten smaller. Uh, it's you know, it's easier for for, for people to get around, uh, as we saw the the appetite for for, uh, for live sport, you know, just bringing people together uh, on and off the pitch, uh, you know, has been a you know recognised as a very important element in terms of personal mental health and and, and well being. Um, but but you're right. Uh, there is a challenge uh, in terms of uh, bringing teams, uh, uh, backroom staff, uh, their the entourage uh, around the venues. Um, I think that there are definitely more and more opportunities to to look at how that can be done in a more sustainable uh, sustainable way. You know, both from an economic and an environmental perspective. Uh, you know, 
looking at, at calendar scheduling is probably the, the, the biggest challenge uh, with more and more sports events happening. It's, a, it's an ever-crowded market, uh, but seeing where you can align uh, these different events uh, to, to reduce the, the, the travel or, or to pair events up so people aren't flying from A to B back to A again to then get over to C. And, and that's something that, that, that we would have done with our uh, Sevens World Series, uh, where we would have had legs uh, around the same time, both in Australia and New Zealand, and we would have had other legs uh, in Europe, in, in London and Paris. So, so trying to pair it up. And I think as well, you know, as, as your, your listeners and, and your members will know, the, the work that's happening in the airline industry, uh, newer technologies, uh, better fuels. Uh, you know, so I, I think looking at, looking at it in the round, um, and probably the biggest impact, is fan travel itself uh, and you know that education piece to, to really uh, make fans aware of what their impacts are and how they can go about addressing it will probably be the, the single biggest impact that we could have. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, Caroline, I mean, obviously Southampton, you know, you've been a leader in the football league in terms of sustainability, but and you might not have people flying all over the world every week, but you've still got the same issue, haven't you? Of loads of people coming up and down the country, probably in their car uh, often, you know, getting to you, eating and drinking loads of stuff and then going away again and obviously enjoying the football at the same time. But a a big challenge for for anybody, any organisation. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're so right. You know, every time we have a fixture here at St Mary's, it's 30,000 people, you know, descending on the city of Southampton and it causes considerable congestion. Of course, the emissions linked to that. It's over 64% of fans traveling in single occupancy vehicles a lot of the time and and how easy it is to drive to the city and park up and then walk the rest of the way. It means that after being here for 20 years, um, that is kind of a long drilled in behavior that's really difficult to tackle when it's just such a habit um and so kind of really where the club comes in is, is recognizing that and i totally agree with jamie you know fan travel for us is a significant dent in our carbon footprint having measured that recently and in the only way to tackle it is to understand what that looks like get your baseline and, and then start to make suggestions about alternatives so you know we actively promote you know the, the walk walking routes to the stadium the train travel the bus travel the different bus routes that have various offers on there's also these electric scooters um, throughout the city of Southampton and they're you know strategically placed around the travel zone of, of the stadium and so we, we're promoting those and we also trialed a fan park and ride during a greener game that we held earlier this year and that was so well received and had such great feedback and it was completely booked up that it's given us um, an indication that there's real demand for that and that people would change their behaviours if we facilitate it as much as possible. So that's something we're actively looking into introducing in the coming months. Um, And yeah. Sorry, I was just to cut him at 64%. Blimey, I mean, that really surprises me. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm Big rugby fan to put it out there, and uh, I mean, but we always try just because it's such a pain, particularly if you want to have a pint at you know in the bar beforehand and take the car. But that's a really surprising. I mean, did that surprise you as well? It did surprise me, and, and the difficulty is to not compare yourself too much to other stadiums. The thing is, you know, like you mentioned, we're on the south coast. Um, you know, a lot of people are traveling from all over the place, and you know, really and truly, it's 
it's it's just it's behaviors it's just a behavior from a long long time and we, we don't it doesn't massively lend itself to some of the stadiums have tram stops directly outside and train stops directly outside and because we don't have that that makes it super super easy to choose sustainable travel i think people have sort of just chosen the the driving route so you know and, the, and there's nothing wrong in in that in the past, but because the club's made such, you know, really public <laughs> commitments and pledges and statements about reducing our environmental impact, we'd be negligent to not try and tackle fan travel as part of that. But um, there will be some people that, that don't want to change that. And that's fine. You know, we're not making anyone do anything. But what we need to do is take responsibility for providing alternatives and 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 publicly sort of promoting the alternatives to try and get that that percentage down. And Jamie, that's a really good point, isn't it? That you know, sports fans are doing it. That you know, they're doing, they're making decisions using their hard-earned cash. They don't want to be lectured. And I can imagine, you know, with the best will in the world, even though they're polite, most rugby fans will give a bit of an internal eye roll if you start trying to kind of, you know, wag a finger at them. So, how do you do it in a way that you know makes the point, but doesn't make people feel that they're having a lecture? Because that's a, a really important thing that. In, in all aspects of life, isn't it? Finding a way of encouraging people to do something without making them feel uh, as though they're being forced to do it. Yeah, no, look through. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the prices of tickets will obviously vary from, you know, sort of five, three or five pounds up to, you know, uh, three and four figures for, uh, for, for for some of the events. And, and, and look, you know, uh, sports, sports fans are certainly no different to anyone else. Uh, everyone is feeling the, uh, the dinch uh, at, at the moment. I mean, I think what Caroline was mentioning there about facilitating it for sports. I mean, just to give you an example, this summer, uh, you know, visiting family on the continent. And when I was booking my flight and when I was booking a rental car, there was an option there just before you got to the checkout to to make a contribution, you know, to, to certified offsetting programs. And, you know, the cost was, we're talking about maybe a pound or a pound fifty uh, for, for for the flights, and maybe you know two or three pounds for for, for, for the car. So, in the grand scheme of things, uh, it was uh, almost negligible. Uh, but you know, so I'm very happy to do it, and it was easy. It was there in front of me, and um, you know, and, and I think that translates then into the stadium experience uh, involving the different stakeholders, uh, the suppliers, uh, so that the you know the, the materials that are used to create the the match day experiences. Be they like the the paper clappers, you know, we're seeing more paper clappers. They used to be the plastic clappers, so uh, so, so some people are are starting to to cotton on to that. You know, the the, the type of uh, food offerings, uh, more and more uh, plant based uh, uh, offerings for fans, uh, and, and fans are, are are happy to do it. Uh, the, the the keep cups, and um, you know, and particularly if they're unbranded, and I know we then get into a bit of a challenge with commercial marketing opportunities and, and everything else, uh, but. You know, there are fans who will be happy to pay a little extra for a souvenir cup. What you don't want is loads of those left and having drawers full of them at home uh, when you can only use one at a time. But, you know, seeing more unbranded cups in stadia. So, yes, if you want to purchase one uh, and maybe a, a percentage of that yeah, goes towards the, um, the sports organizations, uh, environmental sustainability initiatives. But then the other ones are the plain unbranded and, uh, and they go back into the dishwasher and they're ready for the next match day. So uh, I think looking at all those different elements, you know, the, the travel, the merchandise, the, the food offerings, uh, the, the, the waste, uh, I think really helps build that momentum and create that awareness for fans to see, well, look, my, my club, my team, uh, my, my country do, do care about this and, and they're helping me do it. Uh, so, you know, it, it's time for us all to 
step up and be a part of that team. Yeah, that's a really good, interesting point. I mean, we, we talked about the fans quite a bit now, but obviously the, the people that the fans are going to go and see, and this is a question maybe, Karen, if you wouldn't mind starting with, um, you know, the people are the big stars, you know, they're, they're the ambassadors, we see them on the telly every week. Um, is it difficult to get them to uh, buy into sustainability? And we've all got an image probably from, you know, comedy programmes of the footballer in his Maserati, you know, rocking up. After after buying a four million pound house in the country, but you know, do, do they do they get sustainability? Are they happy to be part of it? Um, I would say that across all of our groups, so our first team men's and women's and also our academy players, there's pockets of players who have a keen personal interest in areas of sustainability, not just environmental, but we also see that with the kind of social responsibility. There's naturally going to be people that are more interested than others, but I would say that since the club's been really strongly uh, discussing sustainability from a strategic perspective since we launched the halo effect which was the beginning of 2021 there's been a lot more context behind the work that we're doing and the players are kept informed of that so it's it, rather than there being little piecemeal pieces of work that didn't really kind of tie together in, in a, kind of under any umbrella, um, it's been really helpful to have this. So an example would be when we were reducing plastics at the training ground before the halo effect. It kind of, in, in some areas, the inconvenience of some of the changes and kind of the and introducing changes without the context of the strategy meant that the, the buy-in wasn't necessarily there across some of our groups. And I wouldn't say it's anything negative about any particular individuals, but it certainly shows that when you when you approach something with a strategic kind of, you know, plan in place. So for us, this is part of our wider waste reduction policies is to reduce waste overall. And that includes plastics. And that is part of the halo effect. And they know all about it. That means that when we introduce initiatives to reduce waste and reduce plastics, they're totally on board because they understand why we're doing it. And they're more involved. And we've seen actually a real change in culture towards players suggesting things to us. I'm constantly getting messages, about, you know, from, from the kind of areas around the players sort of saying, oh, when are you getting more EV charging points? Because uh, everyone wants an EV. And, you know, and we've seen pockets of, you know, the player groups um, moving towards electric vehicles, for example, and really welcoming the reusable options that we're introducing and things like that. So definitely, I think there's, you know, there's, as I say, there's this mixture of kind of levels of interest. We deliver environmental education sessions to our academy groups so that as they grow and hopefully thrive through through our academy into our first teams and they'll be the ambassadors of the future talking about environmental sustainability. So that's where I think it kind of really starts. It starts with our academy groups and, and just bringing them along on the journey, really. Mm, that's really interesting. I mean, Jamie, is it a conversation in rugby with, particularly with uh, some of you know, the, the, the biggest playing nations, the Fijis, Tongas, um, South Sea Islands, New Zealand even, where you might be actually seeing direct effects on day-to-day life of, of climate change is that a conversation that goes on at, at any level within within world rugby it, it, it very much is uh, and it was referenced uh, as well um, when we launched our environmental sustainability plan uh, which brings us up to, to 2030 that you know a lot of our, our key rugby playing nations uh, are facing existential threats uh, due to, to rising sea levels and you know we'll all be familiar with the, the term around uh, climate justice and it's you know those who are creating the least emissions are, are the ones that are that are suffering most uh, so you know it's 
uh, we 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 can sit back uh, and and just wait for this to happen and, and hope solutions will, uh, will will be found by by the scientists by the uh, you know uh, whoever it might be and um, every every role every industry sector uh, no matter what size has has a part to play in this and like what we're trying to do across the rugby family is you know from from the community the grassroots level uh, right up to the uh, the high performance uh, game the the internationals. Uh, our commercial partners, our broadcasters, our technical uh, officials, uh, the um, you know the kit manufacturers that everyone sees w w where their piece in the puzzle is, um, and, and and we start asking some of those tough questions. Uh, we're having those questions asked of us, uh, which is which is great because it, it it puts us on the spotlight, and uh, you know I'm pleased to say we. We'd hopefully be more proactive than reactive, but uh, you know, there's there's nothing like a, a commercial partner, for instance, saying, "Well, uh, shows shows what you're doing," uh, and and more and more organisations uh, have realised that, and you know, to to give a, a sport a competitive edge um, could be could be one element, but you know, it, it's the right thing to do. And at the end of the day, if if sport can't take place because of floods or droughts or fires or whatever it might be. That calendar just gets more and more congested. Everyone's fighting for for the airtime, uh, and then just the the actual benefits, the, the health benefits, uh, you know, to to communities, uh, to individuals, uh, will, will will be lost. So, you know, I always love that expression. The the best time to plant a tree was twenty years ago. The next best time is today. Uh, and I think you know everyone, um, and we're seeing this as part of our membership to the UN Sport for Climate Action Framework. Uh, everyone's at different stages of the journey. Uh, but you know, the important thing is, is to just get those first steps going uh, because really a few small wins uh, start to create awareness, build momentum, uh, and before you know it, it's, it's infectious and, uh, and you want to do more. You mentioned the existential threat and obviously you know, every, every sport has playing nations that have got existential threats, but particularly when, you know, the, the COP, we've got COP27 uh, happening later this year in Sharm el-Sheikh, and there will be island nations who are at every COP saying you've got to start making some tough decisions. I mean, do you think that there are parts of the world where um, any sort of international sport might become difficult to, to continue? I mean, rugby or, or anything else, given the, the topography of some of some nations. I mean, I, I remember hearing that one of the the training, some training, it was done you know, running up hills or running up sand on the beach for other nations. I mean, you know, if you're if you're three foot underwater from where you were five, ten years ago, that's not going to be an option. No, no, exactly. And you know, we're then sort of forcing this climate migration uh, for, uh, for for people who want to uh, to, to practice their sport. I mean, you know, you just have to look at the uh, the threat to winter sports. Uh, you know, which has been recognised with, you know, the the snow lines are, are are getting higher each year. The seasons are getting tighter. Uh, you know, people still want to go out and and, and, and you know take part in the games and snow and ice. Uh, but that's that's just becoming less of a, a, a practicality. And um, you know, there there are innovations around it, but you know, they they equally consume significant amounts. Uh, of, of of electricity, and um, so you, you know you're, those those countries that are that are you know at sea level uh, really do. I mean, we saw in Tonga, um, with the the eruption of that volcano and the tsunami uh, that, that that triggered, you know, the devastation that that caused was, was immense, and um, and you know there's still still very much a, a, a 
clearing up and uh, recovery and reconstruction efforts uh, happening there. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the dial won't shift overnight, uh, but, you know, through through those collective efforts, uh, hopefully be able to to uh, affect change, uh, keep keep that uh, global increases to the, those levels as agreed at the, the Paris Accord, you know, because the, the, the clock is ticking. Caroline, Jamie's mentioning there, um, obviously, you know, countries from around the world suffering the effects of winter sports. We've got a kind of an accelerated season, football season, this year because of the World Cup again uh, later this year, just after uh, COP, in fact, um, in, in Qatar. Are you finding already that, that the change in climate is beginning to have an effect on how you deal with players, for example? Because presumably training in 34 degrees of heat is very different to training in a kind of normal English autumn, which would be, what, 16, 18 degrees. Um, I mean, are there the sort of considerations you're having to do already, things like pitch and that sort of thing? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. You know, our operations teams around the pitch kind of pitch management had to change some of their kind of work patterns in terms of when they were working on the pitches. Obviously, everyone needed to take significantly more breaks. The players training sessions were moved around kind of the the sports science and medicine teams that support the players were kind of changing their schedules around the heat and training when when the kind of the heat hadn't really kicked in in the day. So starting earlier or training later, it was so many adjustments. We've got some facilities at the training ground that we had to put limits on the usage due to the heat and we'd installed some water refill points on the side of the pitches so everyone could just keep refilling on a more regular basis that was also part of our uh, our work to reduce plastics to be fair as well but um but we found that they went in just in the right time because we just needed to make sure everyone was rehydrating uh, regularly and yeah there was there was a lot of adjustments needed to be made I tried to make sure that people had access to shelter and there was times when you're thinking, God, this is relentless. You know, when is it going to ease off? Because you think this is okay for a couple of days, but this isn't going to be sustainable long term when you've got such a schedule you normally stick, uh, stick to across, I mean, the training ground, you know, the training ground houses, you know, both first teams and all of our academy. Um, and we were having to move a lot of things around because of the weather. So, and that can be the same weather it's, you know, the, the heat waves that we've experienced or even the storms we've also experienced. There's other there's other things that have to stop when we've had this really stormy weather. So there's, there's been quite a lot of impacts um, from, from weather recently. And, you know, it's very difficult to not keep saying oh, climate change, <laughs> you know, because we, we're trying to link it all together. I mean, there is a map. I mean, going on from Jamie's point that there, there is a map that shows our football training ground and stadium partially, if not totally flooded by 2050, due to rising sea levels because of our location on the south coast and that's that's a big problem you know and it's it, obviously it's really difficult to not go out there with scarce you know s- stories that are going to scare people and make people think oh it's a doom and gloom and, and not get on board with your the work you're doing but ultimately that's what's in the back of my mind and that's that's something that we discuss in our sort of our sustainability steering group so to speak and you know we're, we're aware there's these is this is a, a not a great predicament you know so um Yes, yeah, so yeah, we've already now seen those those immediate changes over the course of the summer. Definitely, that's yeah. And, and I'd like to come back to you both to talk about the future of sport and what you think both think it's going to look like uh, in a moment. But first, uh, Tom, I know you're on the line. Tom Pashby, our digital journalist, and they've been uh, looking at the headlines and stories in the news this month. Tom, what do you have for us this month? Well. 
we've obviously had the news dominated by the news of the Queen's death. It, during that time, well, almost during that time, we've had the news of the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, taking over from Boris Johnson. And she's already started to make some, or at least announce some major changes to to the UK's environmental policies. So the first major piece of news is her decision to end the moratorium on fracking, which has now obviously reopened a debate about whether or not that is a positive thing, particularly in response to Russian constraints on natural gas supplies to continental Europe and in response to high domestic energy bills. Mm. And what has the reaction been uh, so far? I mean, what do people think about? Presumably there's a there's a spread of views depending on your political outlook and your other outlook. And of course, you know, we've got to be aware that there is a an energy crisis and a cost of living crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of the concerns that come from critics like environmental groups have been around things like the fact that the British Geographic Geological Society still hasn't been able to rule out the risk of earthquakes from fracking in England, which is something that has been uh, experienced in certain parts of the USA where there has been um, extensive commercial fracking and also the potential for groundwater pollution. So those are the main environmental concerns, yeah, which I suppose are the main areas of concern from critics in response to fracking. Yeah, and other extraction as well. I believe there's been some uh, you know, potential announcements on there as well. Yeah, so there was a whole range of um, new oil and gas licences, particularly in the North Sea that have been announced, um, which is also in response to the energy bill crisis. And obviously, critics are saying that that would put us at risk of not being able to achieve our, well, what are called nationally determined contributions in our effort to just stick to 1.5 degrees of global heating. And also, a lot of analysts would say that North Sea oil and gas reserves, the economical ones, have been largely depleted. So it would be the harder to reach ones, which are more expensive to extract. And even once those reserves are being extracted, they will be sold onto the international market, as would oil and gas from fracking activities. So it wouldn't necessarily have an automatic impact on domestic energy bills. Uh, nationally determined contributions. So a little teaser there for for some COP wonkery later in the year eight. Top, uh, never short of an, another phrase to kind of slightly discombobulate us. This COP <laughs> in and out of the square brackets, and we'll have all those joys to cover in a couple of other time. Um, so um, obviously, you know, we've talked about extraction, we've talked about fracking, and uh, this is all leading up to. I can't quite remember what it is. is it a fiscal event that we're calling it and not 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 the budget I think yeah I've I've written down three different titles for it so it could be called a fiscal event an emergency budget or a mini budget and I think it used to also be called the autumn statement because we have the spring budget except they sometimes flip them around so yeah that's that's coming up I think on Friday this week and we're recording on Tuesday and it's been pitched in terms of tax cuts and cuts to regulation. So I know that uh, the Prime Minister has, well, decided to no longer continue with certain bills that Boris Johnson's government had put forward to Parliament. Um, I don't know if there has been much specifics in terms of environmental regulation, but I know that lots of the major kind of regulatory mechanisms have been scrapped, like the energy bill, I believe, uh, got announced that it was being scrapped last week. Mm. Yes. Tom, thanks very much indeed for for bringing us up to date on the journalist phrases, fast moving developments in, in the UK 
government. Um, uh, Jamie and Caroline, I wonder if I could uh, come back to you now to, to to think a little bit, as we said, about the future of sport. Uh, Jamie, uh, what do you think? I mean, obviously, you've got a, a plan, you've got a sustainability plan to uh, to lead you up for the next few years. I and mean, what do you think world sport will look like at the end of that plan? Is it going to be very different? Will people still be travelling? Will there be other ways of, of managing those big events? Yeah, look, uh, uh, I'd love to have a, a, a trustworthy crystal ball. Um, I, you know, uh, I, I do see, uh, you know, already sort of, you know, changes in, in, in approaches. I mean, we touched on earlier about uh, merchandise, for instance. You know, that's coming more and more from uh, from, from recycled uh, plastics and materials. I think when it comes to uh, post selection for international tournaments, there's you know, there'll be increasing obligations on, on hosts in terms of the uh, the infrastructure. You know, we're already seeing that with uh, uh, Paris 24 Olympics uh, and LA 28, you know, to, to really limit uh, the need for any any new, new building uh, unless there's like justifiable and tangible uh, legacies and, uh, and an afterlife for it. Uh, I think fans will still uh, want to travel. Um, there might be fewer fans, but... Uh, you know, I suppose there's always been that balance between creating that atmosphere and excitement in stadia, uh, as opposed to we saw what it was like for uh, for, for, for players and athletes, uh, you know, playing in front of empty stadiums during COVID. And um, you know, that's that, that would probably be for me a, 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 the wrong outcome. But if every if the stakeholders are are really looking at all their areas of operation through a sustainability lens, you know, the reduce, reuse, repair, rethink, uh, recycle, and all, all the other R's uh, involved, and it, it'll really, it'll really help uh, uh, embed a, a sustainable design into into all aspects of, of, of sporting events, uh, and and we'll be able to put our hands up and say, you know, we're not we're not greenwashing here. We're not just offsetting our event uh, by buying a heap of credits. We're actually, you know, making uh, uh, authentic attempts uh, and, and verifiable attempts to to reduce our impacts. Uh, and you know those who don't follow suit, uh, I think very swiftly the the regulatory stick uh, will start coming uh, at them from uh, from national governments as well. Caroline, I mean Jamie's point about um, about people travelling and the event. I mean we mustn't forget that uh, those people travelling bring an awful lot to local economies, don't they? And I'm, I'm sure uh, you must see that as well. That every football match, you know, there are businesses in Southampton that benefit as well and we mustn't forget that oh definitely and it's it's such a delicate balance really I think we we recognize there's huge benefits for us being in the city of Southampton and Southampton can thrive um, having a, a you know a host stadium here we also um you know hosted three uh, women's euros games which was absolutely fantastic incredible atmosphere and a great buzz for the city and we also you know have concerts here and you know it's it's a, it's a great venue to have so it's balancing out what the benefits that we bring by being in the city to also the potential, the negative impacts, especially environmentally. So it's kind of working on that delicate balance. But for me, I think with the future of sport, I think we can see a lot more collaboration within leagues, clubs working together uh, on shared kind of you know projects and initiatives that are around the topic of sustainability. I think that we're going to see a lot more accountability expected from sports organisations, um, you know, you know, you know, they're being a lot more expectant, 
expectations on on how we do and don't deliver the game you know i think that's like jamie says you know the, the, that's a really good point about fan merchandise you know we've just you know one minute we're talking about reducing plastics and then it's here you go here's a plastic flag you know which we've obviously moved away from but we were doing we were literally doing that and, and it's kind of going oh hang on a minute there's got to be another way so actively finding ways to build the experience and the atmosphere and what a great buzz in the stadium but without giving away things that are going to end up as waste on the floor it's just irresponsible for us to use you know you know not sustainable materials and so on and so forth. So it's that kind of balance all the time. I think we'll probably see a lot more of the athlete voice being used because it's recognised to be so powerful and impactful and and they're such great role models. So long as they can overcome that initial fear of being called out as a hypocrite if they're not the perfect environmentalist, I think that more and more athletes using their voice will be only a good thing and hopefully we'll see more of that in the future. And then also commercial partnerships working towards shared visions, you know, the, the work we've been doing with Hummel has been really positive and in alignment with Halo Effect and with their sustainability strategy as well. So I think we'll see more of that in sports too. I was going to ask you about that, the point about athletes and potential hypocrisy, because of course, you know, they are sports people at the top of their game. They, uh, you know, they're finely oiled and finely tuned machines. And we've had in, in the past, for example, you know, not perhaps at Southampton, but other clubs using private jets to get athletes or to get their, their players over, you know, to be absolutely at peak performance at the right time, you know, particularly for big batches. And um, that sort of hypocrisy perhaps is is always there. But how do, how do you mitigate that? It's a really good point because there's, it's the fine line. You, you need to be making reductions wherever possible, but there always needs to be a priority as well for peak performance and uh, wh- how to maximise uh, peak performance. So when they go out, it's the, the primary business purpose is to go out and play great football and hopefully, you know, compete at the, the highest possible level. And, and so that's where, you know, we need to be looking at those balances. Jamie made a good point about the kind of the opportunities to have sustainable airline fuels and things like that. So if there are unavoidable emissions from player travel, what what can we do to mitigate that? But in the first instance for us, I mean, being on the South Coast, it does mean some of our journeys generally uh, will involve, there's obviously quite a lot of travel involved. Um, But for us, there's certain fixtures that we've been able to identify that we could easily travel to by coach and, and not by the planes and then there's others that we really do need to fly there's quite a lot of the journeys that we make where the, there's a flight there and a coach back so it's before the game post the game and all of these things are being really really closely looked at and always just treading that fine delicate balance between maximizing your performance but minimizing our environmental impact and we had a research study done by one of our um, interns from Southampton University last season he looked into the carbon footprint of all of our um, uh, senior teams so the first team men's and women's and our B team and they they were able to then quantify what does that look like and where are there some opportunities and that information was then shared and delivered in in form of presentation to all of the logistics teams and the teams around uh, those those player groups so and we're also working with our travel providers. So whoever we're booking our flights and our travel with, like Jamie said, you know, that we're being presented now, which is really interesting with the carbon footprint for the choices that we're being presented with. So you could take this, 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 and this is the carbon footprint for them. So that it enables you to make a more informed choice. It doesn't always mean that you're going to choose the most sustainable, but it gives you because there may be other factors, you know, the timings and things like that, but it gives you the information to be able to make an informed choice. And that's a great step forward from where we were even two, three years ago. 
Caroline and Jamie, thank you so much. Brilliant conversation, really, really. I mean, I, you know, we could talk about this all day, couldn't we? And that would be great to have a bit more time. But thank you so much for joining us on the Green the News podcast. As always, we'd love to hear if you've got any other ideas that you'd like to talk about. Sport was one of them. So, uh, you know, your your wishes do come true on the Green the News podcast. Just get in touch with us at podcast.aima.net or through our social media channels. But from now, from us to you, thanks very much and see you next time. Bye.